Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and on Facebook under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with the Doc, that's hashtag Talk with the Doc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast on heart health because it's Heart Month. I'm your host, Dr. James Beckerman. I am medical director of heart programs and a cardiologist at the Providence Heart Institute here in Portland, Oregon. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. So let's get started. It's great to be here with all of you today, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two colleagues and friends, Dr. Lori Tam and Dr. Aaron Shankerman. I'm gonna introduce the both of you real quick, if that's okay. Uh, Dr. Lori Tam is a cardiologist with the Providence Heart Institute here in Portland, Oregon, and she is also medical director of our Women's Heart Program. Dr. Aaron Shankerman is also a cardiologist with our Providence Heart Institute here in Portland, and he has a specialty in vascular disease and prevention. So, thrilled to have you guys here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So, I told you both beforehand that I was going to ask you lots of easy questions. We are going to talk about prevention. We are going to talk about heart health. We are going to talk about what you can do to be healthier. But I slightly lied because I'm going to start with a question that might be a little bit more difficult. And I want to see if you know the answer. And to be honest, I had to look up the answer for this. So no Googling while I'm talking. When was American Heart Month first established? Any thoughts? I, I don't know. You don't know. Probably Aaron. in the last, like, I would say last three decades. In the last three decades, we got one vote for that. Dr. Shankerman, to you. It's got to be February 14th, 1999. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I'm so sorry to have to disappoint you with the wrong answer so early in the conversation. This is going to be the only wrong answer. I had to look this up because I was thinking to myself, every February, we celebrate American Heart Month. And that's what we're doing here today. Believe it or not, and I'm, I apologize, I'm looking off, off my screen because I want to read this accurately. American Heart Month was established by President Lyndon Johnson under Presidential Proclamation 3566, in December of 1963. That was just a few weeks after the Kennedy assassination. And he said, as part of the proclamation for American Heart Month for February 1964, the first year, 58 years ago, he, quote, urged the people of the United States to give heed to the nationwide problem of the heart and blood vessel diseases and to support the programs required to bring about its solution. And so just a few weeks after that proclamation, on January 11th, 1964, the Surgeon General Luther Terry published the first report linking smoking with health problems. And a couple weeks after that, the first heart month. So guys, you're part of a great tradition is all I'm <laughs> saying here today. So I, speaking of smoking, 
it's amazing to think 58 years ago is the first time that that link was uh, established in, in a public way by the government. Um, when we think about heart disease, we're thinking a lot about risk factors. And I'm wondering, Lori, could you tell us a little bit, what are the risk factors people need to be thinking about? Mm -hmm. So in addition to smoking, many of these lifestyle things that we think about are important, are very important in terms of um, key indicators in terms of your risk for heart disease. So, um, you know, we talk about knowing your numbers. So um, those numbers include cholesterol, blood pressure, knowing what a healthy body weight is, uh, blood sugar. So, um, you know, we know that those conditions significantly increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. So that in addition to smoking, um, uh, lifestyle, in terms of diet and um, also there are other things like sleep apnea and other elements that are important in terms of to recognize in terms of reducing your risk for heart disease long term. Thank you so much, Lori. You know, it, it's interesting, Erin, we think about these risk factors for heart disease. And when doctor, excuse me, not doctor, when President Johnson made that proclamation uh, nearly 60 years ago, kind of recognizing the burden of heart disease in the United States. I'm curious, what do you think? How, how are we doing? Does it feel like we're, we're, we're making progress with heart disease? And if so, how? Well, thanks for, thanks for having us. That's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways in which you can answer that question. I think from a, from an acute perspective, when somebody presents to the emergency department with an acute heart attack or acute um, hypertensive crisis or something of that sort, I think we do a really good job at identifying the problem, treating the problem in the hospital, um, in getting the patient what they need as an outpatient to sort of stay connected with, um, you know, public health and their local health systems. I think from a sort of nationwide perspective in terms of cardiovascular disease prevention and management in the community and outpatient setting, I still think there's while there's been a lot of amazing breakthroughs, I think uh, how those breakthroughs are are used and how we are able to connect with our patients on a day-to-day -day basis still uh, has some room for improvement. What I mean by that is I still think it's relatively uncommon for people to know the numbers that Dr. Tam just mentioned um, and you know to seek out further information. And it's still um, sort of relatively new to talk about prevention with the patient uh, in an office or in a community education setting. So this kind of, you know, this kind of opportunity is great for us to get to sort of uh, connect with the community in that way in a non-acute setting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it it's good to remind ourselves that even though, um, you know, you read about different kinds of health issues in the news, obviously, uh, COVID being number one of everything that you read about these days, but remembering that heart disease is still the number one cause of death and disability in the United States and is now the number one killer throughout the world. Um, so thinking about the things that we can do to um, try to bring that down a couple notches, uh, Lori, you were talking about these different risk factors. Mm -hmm. so. Uh, there's two that I want to get into in detail with both of you today. I'm wondering if maybe I can ask you to tackle cholesterol. So, you know, we know about cholesterol. It's in our, it's in our food. Uh, our body makes cholesterol. Uh, 
what's the big deal with it? Why, why do we need to be thinking about it? And could you also break down the different types of cholesterol that we can be thinking yes, about? Yes, that's a great question. So, you know, cholesterol um, is inherent in all of our body cells. We need some, some amount of cholesterol to make our, bodily, our body function and our cells function appropriately. But um, certain types of cholesterol promotes the condition of atherosclerosis, which is hardening of the arteries from plaque buildup. And atherosclerosis is far and away the most common cause of coronary artery disease uh, and also strokes in this country. So um, cholesterol buildup from resulting in, in atherosclerosis causes buildup and um, that starts to limit blood flow. And when you've got blood vessels and arteries that are blocked, you can't get enough blood to feed the vital organs. If this happens in the heart and there's an acute blockage, it results in a heart attack. If there's a, a blockage like this that occurs in the brain or the vessels of the neck, it can result in a stroke. And if this happens in the peripheral arteries of the lower extremities, it results in peripheral arterial disease and even the ischemic limb where you lose blood flow to the extremity. Um, so uh, cholesterol is, is, an, is um, an element that we really need to control. And it is controllable to a significant degree with um, lifestyle, with um, dietary choices, and also through medications if necessary. So um, we have the total cholesterol, which reflects the total number of uh, certain types of cholesterol particles in the body. And then that is broken down into good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, and triglycerides. So good cholesterol is HDL. One good way to remember that is uh, H is for healthy, so it's the healthy cholesterol. And then the LDL is the bad cholesterol. A good way to remember that is L is for lousy, so um, LDL is your bad cholesterol. So what you really want is high good cholesterol and low bad cholesterol. Now, the good high cholesterol will help clear your system of, of the bad cholesterol. So the higher, the better. And uh, people with low good cholesterol, they're at significant risk for heart disease, probably even higher than people who have bad LDL, bad uh, high number of bad cholesterol particles. But, um, you know, we have medications that over the years have become very important tools for us as cardiologists in terms of managing the bad cholesterol. There are very powerful medicines that can lower your LDL, your bad cholesterol level. Namely, the most common one we use is a statin medication. And I like to say that um, you know statins work in a number of ways. It lowers the number of cholesterol particles in your bloodstream, but it also decreases the inflammation and the stickiness in your cholesterol, if you can think of it that way. Because the more sticky your cholesterol is, the more likely you're formed to form deposits and plaques. So if your arteries and your, your cholesterol is less inflamed, you're less likely to form blockages. And um, patients on statin medicines will have will benefit from some some stabilization of plaque because essentially it makes the plaque less inflamed. Um, there's also another type of cholesterol called, called triglycerides, which are a small small particle type cholesterol, also um, a significant indicator that would increase your cardiovascular risk. And triglycerides tend to be more elevated in patients who um, drink a lot of alcohol, who have diabetes, um, central kind of obesity. So those are things we pay attention to. That's incredibly helpful. Thanks for uh, taking us <laughs> through that. And you know, my big takeaways there are that I want a low LDL cholesterol, I want a high HDL cholesterol, and I want to do what I can with a healthy lifestyle and maybe medication to try to keep those numbers in check. So thinking about that healthy lifestyle, Aaron, what do you think about diet? What should we be doing? Is there a perfect diet? Is there a best diet? Share with us. That's a, um, that's a tricky one. 
Uh, I think I want to probably differentiate for a moment uh, the difference between being on a diet and what sort of your everyday diet is, meaning the foods that you eat and the choices that you make on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and once we sort of differentiate that, I don't think that there's any one special diet, i.e., you know, whether it's paleo or gluten-free or low-carb or whatever you have that we would probably in cardiology favor. I don't, I don't think that would be the case. But I do think when we talk about making good dietary choices, there probably are some things that there's general um, agreement uh, about. Um, and the one other caveat to think about is that this, of course, depends on your family history and your other uh, things that make uh, you up genetically, like whether you have hypertension or whether you have diabetes or whether genetically you're prone to having a high uh, LDL or bad cholesterol. Um, so in general, I think we tell patients to choose foods that are high in fiber and low in saturated fat. Um, and to avoid processed foods or foods that are high in processed sugars. Um, and one diet that is, uh, has been sort of proven to help people with hypertension and generally be considered heart healthy is the DASH diet or the Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension Diet, D-A-S-H. And another diet that we think about, again, not one for necessarily weight loss, but a way of life in terms of food choices is the Mediterranean diet. Um, and there's lots of information uh, online in that. And that is basically a high fiber, low salt, low saturated fat diet um, that allows for a little bit of alcohol in moderation, um, a little bit of um, uh, co complex carbohydrates, not simple carbohydrates, um, and lots of room for fibers such as fruits and vegetables and things of that nature. That's really helpful and also kind of reassuring because a lot of us like to eat different types of food. We, we have the foods we enjoy, the foods that we grew up with, the foods that we like to prepare, the foods we like to celebrate with. And so realizing that there doesn't have to be this one size fits all rigid approach is, is great. But it's interesting to note that the approaches that benefit us from a health standpoint tend to have some things in common, like you suggest, eating real food. Um, so meaning trying to avoid food that's processed, um, trying to avoid food that's really high in sugar. And uh, one thing, you know, whenever we talk about processed food, I think processed meat is a thing that's really important to call out because we all are familiar with uh, treats like bacon or hot dogs or things like that even luncheon meat in a lot of cases and realizing that that is probably less preferable than eating more natural uh, animal products, so to speak. So you mentioned a diet called the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And that's a great segue in thinking about blood pressure. And so I'm curious, maybe because I asked Lori about uh, cholesterol, I'll go back to you quick here, Aaron, asking about your impression of, first of all, what is hypertension and why does it matter? So going back to the knowing your numbers, um, hypertension would be defined as a high blood pressure, a systolic um, blood pressure, the top number of the blood pressure measurement of greater than 130 millimeters of mercury 
or the bottom number greater than 85 millimeters of mercury by the newest guidelines. And what hypertension is, you're, everybody has a blood pressure at some point. You don't want to have it too low. That could mean you're you know, sick in some way. And you don't want to have it too high. Um, hypertension is probably the most common uh, dis chronic disease that we see uh, in internal medicine and cardiovascular uh, medicine that leads to serious illness down the road. Um, and it can it is a major risk factor for um, heart attack, stroke, kidney disease, uh, heart rhythm abnormalities, and even heart failure. Um, it is probably up to 50% prevalent in our greater than 50 uh, year old age group, depending on the population, um, and tends to be diagnosed between the ages of 35 and 65 years old. Uh, rarely we see it before that for the first time or after that. And your blood pressure for every 10 points above 120 uh, that it is, the risk of heart attack, stroke, kidney uh, injury over time, and even death increases by a sort of predictable percentage, especially stroke and heart failure. Um, so knowing that number and getting down to that goal number is very uh, important to do not so much acutely, but over time. One other thing to mention about hypertension I think is important, Jamie, is to say that it's really a silent disease. Uh, people may not know that they have high blood pressure and it may present for the first time with an unfortunate consequence of having it been untreated for many years. And also some of the treatments don't necessarily lead to patients feeling a lot better right away. And so it can be difficult to treat for that reason uh, over time. Super helpful. Thank you. Um, when we're thinking about healthy diet to lower blood pressure, we also have to think about exercise. And I've always been amazed to learn about this beneficial effect of exercise on blood pressure. And so I'm curious, Lori, if you could share a little bit about your thoughts on why exercise is important and even put you on the spot would love you to share. What do you do? How do you stay active? You're a busy person, like a lot of the people listening to us today. How do you fit it in? Well, I think that's a great question. So, you know, all the, the guidelines recommend at least uh, two and a half hours of moderate physical exercise per week, you know, and it could be something fun. It doesn't have to be a regimen where um, you're slogging through at the gym. You know, it could be um, a fast walk. It could be, um, you know, something that you enjoy. It could be swimming. Uh, something that's active, you know, so, um, and, and, you know, the exercise really has significant beneficial effects, not just on blood pressure, but really in all aspects of heart health. It um, essentially decreases the resistance and rigidity of our blood vessels. Um, you know, it promotes kind of better blood flow and that uh, can improve um, our, our, all of our vascular processes and, and decrease your risk of significant conditions. So for most of our patients, in addition to watching your diet, if you've got high blood pressure, we also want to watch your sodium intake. You know, 90% of Americans eat too much salt, so that's something we can do. But exercise is something you can build into your everyday life that can significantly improve your numbers. You know, the studies have shown that even if you don't lose weight, exercise, people who exercise are going to be healthier and they're going to have better outcomes even without weight loss. And of course, if weight loss comes with it, there is additional benefit to that as well. So, um, you know, in terms of exercise, I will tell you, I've got three young kids, so both of you know, um, so my life is busy, but um, you know what I did at the beginning of the pandemic? Dr. Beckerman gave me that, that idea, actually. I, I bought myself a cheap $100, like, exercise bicycle off uh, Amazon, 
And um, I put it up in the family room and at night when my kids are asleep and in bed, I watch the news and I hop on and do my 45 minutes. And you know, for me, the 45 minutes goes real quick because I, my mind is engaged in something that I was gonna be doing anyway. But rather than sitting on the couch and watching the news, I'm just you know on my bike and getting my 45 minutes in. So when I'm done, I feel good about myself. All my good healthy endorphins are up because I felt like I accomplished something that was a goal that was important to me. The exercise itself releases all these positive hormones that make you feel better anyway. It's been shown to decrease depression and improve blood pressure, all of those other things that are so good. So, you know, and before the pandemic, I would do bar class, which is a mix of um, a kind of dance and ballet with aerobics. And, um, you know, I, I thought that was a good way to get, keep engaged and remain active. And I would go with some of my, my mom friends on a random day off or on a weekend. And um, so I think it's important to build exercise into your life but to also make it something enjoyable. That's wonderful and very inspiring. Um, Aaron, how do you fit it in? What do you like to do? Well, the pandemic has made it uh, more difficult. I think it's fair to admit that for everybody uh, watching out there. Um, but I, uh, I use exercise bike um, and uh, go for bike rides around uh, the city when it's not too cold and rainy. Um, so that's usually 30 to 45 minutes most days of the week and at least one day on the weekend. Um, so Lori mentioned two and a half hours a week, that's about 30 minutes, five times uh, a week. So, and there's different ways you can do that. You can do a little longer, um, and more aggressive exercise if pe for people who are in good shape, um, and don't have symptoms with that. You can do sort of high energy or high interval, um, training for, you know, 45 minutes, three times a week. And that's similar to 30 minutes, five times a week, as long as you're getting some sort of aerobic exercise. Um, and I like to do different things as well, play soccer with the kids or take the dog for a walk or go for a swim or a bike ride just to mix it up because it's very difficult to do the same thing uh, every every day, I'm sure many people could attest to. Um, but uh, I personally feel a lot better uh, mood wise when I move my body. Um, and so that that's definitely a priority, uh, even with the busy uh, schedule and kids and everything, like Lori said. Oh, I think it's inspiring to hear from two busy cardiologists who are also parents that it's possible. There's a way to, to do it, a way to carve it out. Um, interesting that, uh, you know, both of you enjoy cycling as a way to, to exercise. Um, I, I uh, do a little bit of cycling myself, enjoy running, and uh, believe it or not, it's hard to see on the video, but weightlifting too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, for me, what's really helpful is setting a certain time of day. Um, like like you and, and many of the folks who are listening out there, you have these other responsibilities, family, work, um, and even social obligations that you still are trying to enjoy during this pandemic safely. And, uh, you know, having a time of day that works for you, for me, it's before work. And I know that, you know, by this time of day, I, I've already taken care of that thing. I don't have to think about it anymore. And so that makes it even just a little bit less stressful for me because it's not something hanging over my head, so to speak. Um, we're really talking about something that we like to refer to as part of our Providence Heart Institute team as the 80% opportunity. Um, this is the idea that roughly 80% of the risk related to heart disease is something that we can manage. And it's about how you eat, how you move, how you live, and also staying up on all those important preventative things with your uh, 
with your physician or care provider, knowing your numbers. And it's not just enough to know them. You got to do something about them if you find that they're abnormal or elevated or concerning. We have a question uh, from uh, some of the folks who are listening asking about blood pressure. And so uh, curious what you guys think about what is the approach we take generally if somebody's blood pressure is really high? What do we have to do about that? And how quickly do we need to do that? Lori, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, if it's mildly elevated, um, you know, kind of up into the 140 or less range, um, we will start with some lifestyle interventions. You know, it's very intensive lifestyle interventions where we counsel them on reducing sodium intake, increasing exercise, losing weight um, to try to get those numbers under control. You know, I give it a, a short period of time, a few weeks, to see if there's any response. If the numbers really aren't budging, the numbers are persistently elevated, um, rather than risk potential for vascular damage and other issues, we will start them on medications. And we've got a number of medications that we've uh, used for decades now, which do a very good job of controlling blood pressure. And um, those medications include different classes, like diuretics, they're angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors, which work on hormones that dilate the blood vessels, work on the kidneys. Um, there are uh, primary vasodilator medicines like calcium channel blockers, there's beta blockers, which reduce heart rate and blood pressure, kind of it reduces the adrenaline effect on the body. So there's a number of medications that we have available to us that if the numbers aren't um, improving, we will start them on medicine so that we don't, we start to decrease the risk of heart disease, stroke, and everything else that goes with it. That's really helpful. Aaron, if blood pressure gets really high and, you know, it's especially if you're not used to having high blood pressure and you check it and it's very, very elevated, um, what are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think I'll take it from the opposite perspective um, of Lori and work our way down. I, I think recently the guidelines have changed and we would consider, you know, sort of advanced stage hypertension as any measurement above 160 millimeters of mercury. And, you know, years ago, even when we were in medical school, we would have said, you know, it, it needed to be higher than that to really act on it. I think what you'd find, whether your blood pressure is mildly elevated or majorly elevated, um, you know, over 160, over 180 millis, millimeters of mercury, and you're not having any symptoms, no chest pain, um, you're not, you don't have a headache, you know, there's not a concern that it might be so high that you could be having an acute stroke. What I think most doctors would do is start with some basic laboratory evaluation to see what's going on at that level of blood pressure to see if this is an acute or a chronic problem. And if it's an acute problem, that really, uh, is, is something that needs to be treated relatively immediately in uh, an emergency or an inpatient setting. And if it's more chronic, i.e. people are asymptomatic and their blood pressure has been elevated for a long time, we'll work a little bit more quickly than we would um, in somebody with uh, less severe hypertension, but we would but we would start medications and start layering medications pretty quickly to get the person uh, down to a more reasonable goal. There's a lot of technicalities when it comes to, you know, defining somebody as having a hypertensive emergency versus urgency versus just outpatient severe, you know, uncontrolled hypertension. And so without getting into that, I think it really matters, you know, what kind of symptoms you have and what evidence there is in our workup of sort of organ damage as a result of the high blood pressure and how quickly and aggressively we would treat that would be based on what we found in terms of injury uh, going on. But certainly if your blood pressure is greater than 160 
uh, at any point, that probably warrants at least a call to your primary care doctor or cardiologist uh, to discuss uh, possible options for that. Thanks. That's a really great takeaway. If, if, if your numbers are abnormal, contact your healthcare provider to uh, get advice about the next step. And particularly if you have symptoms, if you're experiencing things like chest pain or shortness of breath or severe headache or changes in your vision or dizziness, these are reasons to contact a healthcare provider and find out next steps. It's so great to have the chance to, to see you both and uh, to talk to you about these really important issues um, to commemorate uh, this 58th anniversary of Heart Month together. So thank you so much to Dr. Lori Tam and Dr. Aaron Shankerman for your time and expertise. And a reminder to everyone out there that if you are interested in learning more, please check out providenceheartguide.org to get uh, access to a great uh, treasure trove of information with recipes and information uh, about these important numbers that these physicians have been sharing with us. And if you uh, need to see a doctor or are interested in learning more, please check out providence.org. And don't forget to follow Providence on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks everybody for your time and I hope everybody has a wonderful day and a wonderful heart month.